did not schedule a sermonette for this afternoon. I felt like I'd scheduled enough guys and worn them out sufficiently that I wouldn't make another one go through it. Besides that, I wanted two solid hours at you. Though <coughs> so I, I actually told myself I would try to cut this short, especially since I'm starting so early. I, I know we're at the end of a lot of sitting and a lot of eating and not enough exercising and everyone's getting tired. The only one I've heard say, let's have a feast for another eight days, was uh, one of the kids. <laughs> and he was thinking, I think, of food only, was, was what he had in mind, probably. <clears throat> At any rate, we've been progressing through, progressing slowly, through the meanings of the feast. And uh, we got through atonement yesterday. So today I want to address the Feast of Tabernacles, since we look upon it as the last great day. <laughs> the Feast actually ended yesterday as far as Feast of Tabernacles as we understand it. But there is a problem in doctrine. I'm going to rehearse for you very quickly what our viewpoint on the last great day was. Uh, traditionally and worldwide, and I preached it as well. But the last great day was to come after the millennium, after Satan was loosed a bit, and all those who have never had a chance at salvation would then be resurrected and live a hundred years. And then would come uh, the third resurrection, and all the earth and the heavens would be burned to a crisp. Nothing left. It says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I make all things new. And that was used to say that everything there is would be burnt. By then, all human beings would have had a chance and would have either qualified to be spirit and changed so that fire would not hurt them, or they would burn up in the conflagration at that time and never be heard from again. We cited Isaiah 65 to show that uh, it was a 100-year period. We used 2 Peter 3.18 to show that the earth was going to dissolve and come apart. Now, I believe that even though there are some elements of truth here and there in that, they were misapplied time-wise, and much of it, cannot be supported biblically. So I don't care what we might dream up or what interpretation we might put on things, we need to examine the scriptures carefully and try to examine all scriptures on any given subject to see what God might add here a little and there a little to get a full picture of what he's talking about. It is so frequent among Protestants, and I'm finding even in the Church of God, that we will use one or two passages about a subject and build our projection or our doctrine or belief on one or two. So we're not complying with God's instruction that all Scripture is given for instruction and reproof for doctrine and instruction in righteousness. So we're short-sheeting ourselves, if you will, a bit by not getting the whole story. Now, I did a sermon on this in the 
How Exclusive is the Church series, oh, way back in, probably just before 2000, somewhere in there, 98-99, and went through the whole subject, among others, and found that some of the things we believed weren't really so. Some of you have heard that, and I've made some reference to it since, but I think since we're going through the meaning of the days, as we're progressing here, it behooves us to consider this again. Let's start in 2 Peter 3.18. 2 Peter 3.18. Now, in verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, into which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Close book. Preach earth all being burned up after the last great day. Wait a minute. What did we see at the beginning of verse 10? But the day of the Lord. If you look at all the scriptures on the day of the Lord... Matthew 24 says, after the tribulation of those days is when the skies will be darkened and so on, and the day of the Lord immediately follows the tribulation. That's not 1,100 years later, is it? This isn't talking about 1,100 years after Christ returns. It cannot be, because it's speaking of the day of the Lord. Joel 2 talks about the day of the Lord, and it's talking about human beings still being here on the earth and repenting and turning to God, and that he will be pouring his spirit out upon our young men's and our ma- our young men's, our young men and maidens and various ones. So the context of Joel 2 is completely of the end times, and it's speaking of the day of the Lord as it so says. So Joel 2 establishes the day of the Lord in the end times, tribulation time, and just after. Look up day of the Lord. I didn't uh, jot that down and plan to go there, but uh, there are quite a few scriptures on the day of the Lord. Joel 2 just happened to come to mind to make this point, that the timing is established in other scriptures about the day of the Lord. So, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So whatever this is describing, and it sounds like pretty climactic, dramatic events, is it the day of the Lord, not later as we ascribed it to. Let's pick up the context here a little bit in 2 Peter 3. The second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, verse 1, and both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Now there's a key again. He is here to remind them of things spoken by the holy prophets. Who would that be? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the mitre prophets. And in fact, we just read a quote from 
Joel, or partial quote from Joel. Where did Peter get what he wrote here? That's important for us to understand. So we'll go back to the source here in a minute. We'll see what Peter was quoting and what it actually says. Not just what we might take from one verse, and not even the whole verse at that, leaving out the day of the Lord, just overlooking it, that's all, just overlooking it, and concocting a doctrine. <clears throat> so the things that Peter is about to talk about, he said, are words spoken of by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Eternal and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So the setting here is last days as well, the end times. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. People say, hey, time just goes on and on. There's no evidence that the end is almost here. What are you talking about? For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, speaking of Christ, John 1, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Do we have some dramatic language already introduced into this chapter, so that the world perished? Where is the world? The world is still here. The earth is still here. Man perished. But he uses the terminology of the world. Maybe he means the people of the world. He doesn't say that. He just says the world perished. What do you look upon as the world? A world map? In modern English, an e I mean a, a, a globe? That's the world. Well, if the world perished, I don't know where we're standing. Anyway, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, <clears throat> by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Okay, the judgment of the flood was not against the earth itself, was it? It was against men who were sinning. So that world perished, the people in it, but the earth remained. That's an important point for us to get right here. As we continue reading, but the heavens and the earth which are now, that which we see around us, which is now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment, and perdition of ungodly men. Has it said at this point that the earth itself is to be burned? No, it says the judgment of men. It is men that will be burned. The lake of fire is for men and women. I mean, you can be included. <laughs> I don't mean to be sexist about all this. <clears throat> Perdition of men, not soil, okay? But beloved, 
Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years as, is as one day. They were saying, hey, things have just been going on and on. It doesn't end. He's saying, wait just a minute. With God, time doesn't mean much as it does in human terminology. Just hang on, things are going to happen. The eternal is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He said, just because God hasn't done anything when you think it is, doesn't mean he's asleep at the switch. Remember that for him, a day is like a thousand years. But is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. So the judgment, the problem, is people... And he's giving us space to repent, and he's not willing that any of us should perish. He doesn't want to lose us, but that all should come to repentance. So God is giving us time. And then he introduces the terminology of the day of the Lord, which we know is a part of the end time just before or at the return of Christ, as other scriptures indicate. So he's describing the conflagration that will occur during the seven last plagues, when God's wrath is poured out upon... Why would he be angry at the earth? He created it very good. He's not angry at the earth. He's angry at the men who sinned, and he's angry at the men who have polluted the earth. He even says in another place in Revelation, Woe to them that pollute the earth. Why should he destroy his creation when it's people that are the problem? But he doesn't want us to, dis to perish either. So we already read that twice in verse 10. So going to 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What does dissolution mean or dissolved mean? You put something in acid and it just goes away, right? The elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise. Now where is that promised? We, according to his promise. Now, this is important. He must have, if, if Peter is quoting a promise of God, then that promise has to come from somewhere, right? We should be able to see what promise he is talking about. Let's establish that, because we're going to go there. And it's going to shed more light on this subject. According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Now, just to take this verse, these two or three verses, right where they are, without context and without comparing to other scriptures, I would say, yes, indeed, it sounds like everything's just going to dissolve and melt down to nothing, and we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, you have to take out what the holy prophets may have said and what promise he's quoting, and the day of the Lord part, which dates it, gives it when. You have to take all that stuff out. But if you do take all that out, and you read just the destruction part, 
it does sound that way. So, I'm giving you that side of the argument first. Then we'll look at the other side and see what we come up with. So we do, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We certainly do. Now, who, what, why, where, when, and how? We need to explore. So he tells us then that we ought to be making ourselves without spot and blameless and righteous and holy so that we might be a part of that new heaven and new earth where it's righteousness. All right, since Peter said that there was a promise made, let's go back to Isaiah. He must have been quoting from somewhere, and all he had was the Old Testament. And lo and behold, we're going to find promises of a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah. But before we get to that particular part of it, I want to go to Isaiah 24 and give you a brief insight into the history, recent, fairly recent history, of Sabbath keepers in this nation. There was a Seventh-day Church of God. There were people who came across in the Mayflower who were Sabbath keepers, Holy Day keepers, who did not keep Christmas and Easter. So there were, I think you could probably call them true believers, who came here originally. And they were few in number and quickly became a vast minority. But some remained true to it. And back in the mid-1800s, there was a split in the church. Uh, Ellen G. White looked upon herself as a prophetess, and she split off from the Church of God Seventh Day about, I think it was around 1844. And she wrote a book, um, The Great Controversy? Yeah, that was the name of the book. And she had what she called the desolate earth theory that the earth would become utterly and totally desolate without any inhabitants. All, all men dead. Charred earth. Desolate earth. And she used Isaiah 24 as her authority. Now, lo and behold, and we used to ridicule her for having done that and point out the places in Isaiah 24 which gave the lie to her theory. But lo and behold, we formulated a similar doctrine that said the whole earth was going to be burned up and no man left. After decrying her use of Isaiah 24. Let's go through Isaiah 24 and see if both she and we may have been in error. Now he's talking here about Tyre. And Babylon, in, verse, in chapter 23, uh, Babylon is destroyed when? Revelation 18, <clears throat> right at the end of this age. The beast and the false prophet kill the woman who rode the beast. That woman is the United States, who is the great whore of Ezekiel 16, that they hate. They will get rid of her. So... The context here so far in Isaiah, if it's chronological, and I think that it is very likely so, these two chapters following on the heels of each other, 
the timing here is of, again, the end times of this age, not 1,100 years later after the millennium and a 100-year period, the last great day. Okay, with that, <clears throat> let's go to 24. Behold, the Eternal makes the earth empty. Oops, Ellen was right. And makes it waste and turns it upside down. Now that's pretty violent, isn't it? And scatters abroad the inhabitants. Oh, well, let's skip that. Scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Oh, they're inhabitants? Well, when you turn it upside down, it kind of shakes them around and scatters them. But they're there so far. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with their mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. In other words, everybody. It's going to affect the whole world. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Eternal has spoken this word. Now, when you say utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, that sounds utterly, <laughs> just on the face of it, does it not? Now, I'm going through this sentence by sentence and word by word because I, I want us to grasp that sometimes we can formulate things in our minds and adopt them when we don't have the whole story. And if we're going to believe differently than what we have believed in the past, we need it proved. Not just my idea. I do not want you following what I say because I said it. I want you following it because you found it in here. You proved it. Well, we can do this together or we can do it separately. But I'm going to do my best to show you in Scripture and help you prove it along with me. And if you're still not convinced, we can talk later and you can study some more until you get it right. We should agree. Paul said he did, didn't want any division, any schism. He wanted us to all speak the same thing. So it's not proper for you to say, well, I don't agree with that. I'll just go do this while you do that. That's not the proper approach. The proper approach is to sit down and sort it out and find out what the real answer is instead of dividing and doing things in different ways at different times. We need to find God's truth, not your idea or my idea. What does God Almighty say is the only thing that matters. And hopefully, we can be humble enough and meek enough and maybe smart enough to sit down and figure something out from Scripture because it's the final authority. Okay? We were down at utterly emptied and utterly spoiled. Sounds like everybody there, doesn't it? Verse 4, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. 
The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Does that mean then that, as we read, we'll find that every last one of them gets wiped out? Let's proceed. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth. Devoured sounds like it's all gone too, doesn't it? These are pretty powerful words being used here. And they that dwell therein, they that dwell therein are desolate. So it is devoured, and yet there's still people dwelling therein. They're desolate, but they're still dwelling therein, aren't they so far? You're with me? Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned. And then Ellen G. left out the next four words. She did, literally, in her book. And few men left. You know what? We left those four words out too. Totally burned up, gone. Has to be recreated totally from scratch. That's what we taught. So far it doesn't float, does it? The new wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted do sigh. You still got to be alive to sigh. You can be dead and burp, but to sigh, you got to be alive. The mirth of tabrays ceases, the noise of them that rejoice ends, the joy of the harp ceases. So he's saying everything's going to be a downer. Still people around, but they're not going to have very positive feelings. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. Got to be alive to drink wine. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. There's quite a bit already in here about people still being alive, isn't there? After all this incredible destruction. Verse 13, When thus it shall be in the midst of the land, among the of all things people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. That requires some life. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. That takes life and talent both. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Still ships out there, I guess. Wherefore glorify the eternal in the fires, even the name of the eternal God of Israel in the islands of the sea, or the coastlines. Verse 16, From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, My leanness, my leanness, woe is me. I'm so skinny, I don't get enough to eat. It's going to be a bad time. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yes, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously say, Wall Street or something like that. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. She left out whole verses, whole chunks of this, and the verses she did quote, she left certain words off of. I think you're getting the picture now, that there's destruction, there's violence. But this gets worse. 
Verse 18, And it shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear, got to be alive to get up and flee, shall fall into the pit, and he, he that comes out, out of the middle of the pit shall be taken in the snare. There's going to be danger everywhere, but people still running around trying to get out of trouble. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. The whole foundation shakes. Now notice, here is where Peter was quoting from, at least part of it. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. I don't know about you, but clean dissolved in my modern language means invisible, gone. But is that what it means? The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. How does it reel to and fro if it's dissolved and gone? There's something been dissolved, all right, but the earth is still there reeling like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. The transgression is going to go away. It's going to lead this shaking and quaking and reeling and dissolution is going to cause people to say, wait a minute, I don't know whether I want to sin anymore again or not. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. So in the day that it's dissolved and reels, Back and forth, God is going to be punishing the kings of the earth. Where? Up on the earth. Still there. So when verse 19 and verse 20 is complete, God shows himself to still be punishing the kings of the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed. Has the old whole earth burned up? No. Sun and moon are still there and ashamed. When the Eternal of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients glor gloriously... Well, this is talking about right after Christ returns, when he begins to reign on the earth at the beginning of the millennium. So the day of the Lord ends at the same time this starts. Joel 2 talks about it being dark and, and uh, earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. Same language being used here in Isaiah 24. Let's go on down. It continues the... The context. And what does it immediately begin to talk about? This period of time culminating in the day of the Lord and the earth being shaken and men being punished. What is the time context here? This is important for us to get. Chapter 25. O eternal, you are my God. He's, Isaiah says, this is all going to happen. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. 
You've made of a city a heap, of a defense city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify you. The city of the terrible nation shall fear you. So he's saying this destruction is going to come, but I'm going to worship you. How is Isaiah going to worship him? He'd be dead by then. He is now. I wonder if he's coming up in a resurrection so he can worship God when these people begin to repent. For you've been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Where are his people going to be? In Zion, the place of refuge. He's going to protect them from the heat, a shadow from the heat, a refuge from the storm. This is talking about the time when God's people are being protected, when the rest of the world is being punished terribly, is when this is talking about. Now, why did Peter call it in verse 10 of 318, or 3.10, the day of the Lord? Because that's what Isaiah is describing back here, is that period of time. You shall bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with a shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall the eternal of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. This isn't when there are still people around. We looked upon this as the last great day when all people would have either been turned into spirits or burned up. And yet here's Christ ruling people. Well, when is that? Well, that's the millennium. This stuff that he's talking about is just before the millennium, right? Because that's what comes next. Verse 7, and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He's going to remove the deception and blindness and begin to teach them the truth. Now this next one is really, really good in verse 8. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for the eternal has spoken it. Where do you remember hearing death is swallowed up in victory? You heard that lately? Anybody remember where it was? Seemed like I read it yesterday. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. Oh well, what well, was verse fifty-five? Talking about when the last trump in verse fifty-two. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye will be changed. When Christ returns at the last trump, there's the context. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Emmanuel the Christ. That gives you the timing. That's when death is overcome in victory. Paul was quoting Isaiah 25 as well. And he thinks it's at the time of the first resurrection. I thought it was ironic this morning when somebody turned to Psalm 18. 
I'm going to go back there for a minute. David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength. Then he talks about his troubles and his enemies and so on, and the sorrows of death encompassed him in verse 4. Sorrows of hell compassed me about, verse 5. In my distress I called upon the Eternal and cried to my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. Now, this is David's experience in the context. This is him looking to God, and it seemed like his troubles were so big. His sons were trying to kill him. People were against him for his sins. Uh, foreign nations wanted to destroy his kingdom. David had his plate full of problems, his own and others. And in great distress, he called on God, and it seemed like heaven and earth moved. I called on the Eternal and cried to my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry before him even to his ears. Then, now he was a human being, living, making this prayer over 3,000 years ago. And he said, then, as a result of my prayer, the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was angry. Then went up a smoke out of his nostrils. Who saw that? And fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He made darkness his pavilion, and so on. Verse 15, Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at your rebuke, O Eternal, at the blast of the breast of your nostrils. He's just talking about an answered prayer. He said, when I prayed, the heaven and earth moved. God took heed. Wouldn't you like it if you'd pray and stuff like that had happened? That'd be neat, wouldn't it? It will someday. We live in faith. He says, if we had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, we'd move mountains. Well, David moved mountains. It may have been, have been alliterative. may have been dramatic language. But as far as his psyche and his being and the problems he had, he says, God delivered me in such a powerful way. So God is able to use imagery to describe something that may not be technically correct, if you're to look up each word in Webster's, but he tempers it by saying, few inhabitants and few men left and the inhabitants thereof. He shows you that it is not total destruction in Isaiah 24, but it sure does seem like it to the people that are there. Now, I think that this was also a prophecy that David was giving, and there may have been volcanic action involved. I don't know that. I wasn't there. It could allude to that. That's a possibility. But what I want to show you is the type of imagery that God sometimes uses that is not always strictly literal although through volcanoes this could have been. But what sounds to us like charring it to a cinder is tempered by what God says about it. And there again, we have the Bible interpreting itself by Peter and Paul quoting this passage. Peter puts it at the day of the Lord, 
And Paul puts chapter 28 as at the first resurrection. Long time before that 1,100 years we talked about, okay? Now, let's go to Isaiah 65. Because this is the primary chapter that was read to us on the last great day of the feast. Was it used correctly? Now, he is talking here uh, Let's pick it up at the beginning. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. People are beginning to wake up and find God, even those who did not seek him. I said, Behold me, behold me to a nation that was not called by my name. So here we are at the end of Isaiah. He talks a great deal in here about the destruction that is about to come on Israel and on Babylon, on various nations and peoples of the earth. There's some pretty dire prophecies in Isaiah. And he's wrapping it up here. A people that provoke me to anger continually, so the end of the world is not here yet, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Does that sound like the last great day? Does that sound like a time when everybody's obeying God? They're eating swine's flesh after the millennium? I kind of doubt that. Which say, stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than you. You've heard the expression, holier than thou. This is where it came from. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all day. He's not really into self-righteousness among men. <laughs> you know, what do we have to be righteous about, after all? Verse 8, thus says the eternal, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. So he says, like new wine, my people are like new wine. They're, they've learned, they're doing, don't destroy it. I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. So, so far in this chapter, we're talking about a time when God restores blessings and his people will dwell there. We always said Isaiah 65 was when the new heavens and new earth came and there weren't any people left. Verse 13, Therefore thus says the eternal God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. No more tears, no more pain for us. But he's talking about people here in the context who are still going to be vexed by all kinds of problems. And you shall leave your name for a curse to my chosen. For the eternal God shall slay you and call his servants by another name. When are we going to get our new name? Read Revelation 2 and 3. He's talking to the seven churches there. He's talking about the time of resurrection and reward of the saints. 
and promising each of the seven the kingdom of God if they will repent. It isn't 1,100 years after they repented and been raised in the first resurrection. He talks about giving us a new name at the time that we are resurrected, made God, and named after what we are. That's when he's going to call his servants by a new name. That he who blesses himself in the earth, oh, the earth, shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from my eyes. Now he says the former troubles are gone and people are going to begin to serve God. When does that first happen? Beginning of the millennium, right? For behold, and here's where we always picked it up. We didn't get the context ahead of time. We picked it up right here and read from this point on and still got it wrong. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now when Peter said, or quoted the things that the holy prophets said, he quoted in part Isaiah 24, and he quoted in part Isaiah 65. And he called it the time of the day of the Lord, didn't he? Okay? Let's examine this. I create new heavens and a new earth. Does that mean that this earth and the heavens have been completely burned up then? And the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. I submit that that means the way of living that we see going on on the earth today, the lives that we and people around us have lived, Things are going to get so much better that nobody would care to remember that which has passed away. Remember our teaching and what it was, that after 1,100 years, the heavens and earth would be burned up and there would be no flesh left. That's what we taught. We would have either been in the fire lake of fire, when the earth burned, or we would have been changed to spirit and there would be no humans left. That's what we taught having read these verses so far. We didn't read it all. I'm sorry, but we didn't. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her what? Her people a joy. Well, does that mean, that must mean spirit people. Well, let's go on. Let's find out. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. So from that, we, this is the only place that we found anything that said the great white throne judgment or the last great day was a hundred years. This is where we got it. There's no other scripture that says anything like this. This is the entire proof scripture for that. 
We said that all those people who lived and died and never had a chance at op- or an opportunity at salvation would be in the second resurrection at the time that the uh, thousand years was finished. It says the rest of the dead lived not till the thousand years were finished. I'm not saying there's not a last great day and a great, great white throne judgment. I'm saying we misplaced it in time and we misplaced it to some degree in meaning. Okay? It does indicate here that whether you're a child or an old man, you'll live a hundred years. And they shall build houses and shall inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Why didn't we read that? We have people building houses and farming. Spirits don't build houses and farm, do they? They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people. Trees live a hundred years about. Some of them longer than that. But he did mention a hundred years here, so that's more like a tree, isn't it? And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. During the period of time this is talking about, they're going to be having babies. We taught in the last great day, great white throne judgment, there wouldn't be any babies being born. Everybody would live a hundred years and have their judgment. We didn't read verse 23. This is talking of a millennial setting, not a last great day. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now, verse 25 is very curious. We have traditionally read Isaiah 11 at the Feast of Tabernacles and applied it to when? The millennium. What's this? The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullocks, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. I just wonder if Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65, 25 are talking about the same time. Curious, isn't it? Now let's go on. We never did tie Isaiah 66 in with those sermons. Let's go on down to chapter 66. This is the last chapter in Isaiah. Let's go toward the end of the chapter. And let's see where the new heavens and the new earth are discussed again. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me. So he's saying, I'm going to make the new heavens and the new earth, and they're going to remain before me. Well, we've got to quit reading right there. It's going to endanger our old teaching. (coughs) Do we have any sacred cows we don't want slain today? As the new heavens and new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, 
so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all spirits come to worship before me, says the Eternal. Did I misread that? Let's look at it again. All flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. So in the new heavens and new earth, which he has made and created before him, all flesh will come to worship him. <coughs> Everything that has been done has by that time been done that we ever preached about, and yet there is still flesh coming to worship before his throne. That is diametrically opposed to our former doctrine. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. Now that reminds us of the destruction at the end of the age, Revelation 19, where he says, the flesh of captains and the flesh of all these different types of people will be killed before him, and the eagles and the vultures will come and feast on them, and that it will take time to bury them. This is a time of end-time destruction. And he says, when the new heavens and the new earth are here, people will A, come worship him, and B, they will be abhorred by the bodies still laying around. Ezekiel says it'll take seven months to bury them. This is at the beginning of the millennium, and it's certainly not after the last great day. Is this becoming clear? Now consider Matthew 5. We just read that recently too, didn't we? Let's go back there. I promise I won't take four days. Uh, verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. Don't you think for one moment I am coming to destroy the law and the prophets? Peter saw fit to, dis to quote the prophets, didn't he? After Christ had died, after he had been resurrected, after everything that was done away had been done away, and the early New Testament church was way downstream from that, here was old Peter that didn't get the picture, still quoting the prophets of all people. They hadn't passed away, had they? For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled to the full. Now, he is guaranteeing here that his law will exist unless and until the heavens and the earth pass away. Is he saying that they will pass away? No, he's saying his word will last as long as heaven and earth. That there's no more chance of heaven and earth passing away than his law passing away. 
Now, let's suppose the heaven and earth did pass away according to our former teaching. Would then God decide that also had been done away, and now it was okay to lie and steal and cheat and covet and lust and break the Sabbath, and his whole way of life would go away? I don't think so. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his law is never going to go away because that is what regulates his conduct. He didn't need it written down and codified because he is love. He is the law. And he is not going away. Therefore, heaven and earth cannot pass, and neither will the law. It's that simple. All right, now with that background, those are all the scriptures we had for a hundred-year period during the last great day and the earth being destroyed afterward. Okay? That's all we had. That's all we used. Now, we've read all of those, and we found that there are problems there. The problems being there's still people around. It didn't fit our old doctrine. It didn't work. All right, there's one other place the new heavens and earth are mentioned. We need to go there. Because we've already established in Isaiah 24 and 25 that it's the time of the end and the time of victory over death, the first resurrection. We've accomplished that it is at the day of the Lord that Peter talks about these things happening, not 1,100 years later. So anything we read in Revelation 21 about the new heavens and the new earth has to be when? Anybody know? Huh? Premillennial? At least by the beginning of the millennium, but not after. Because the day of the Lord is immediately premillennial, and the first resurrection is the last trump, premillennial. And there's still human beings here after the earth is destroyed and burned up and all these dramatic things have been done. Still people. So our doctrine just simply didn't fit, did it? All right. Then we need to examine Revelation 21 in the light of or the knowledge disseminated by the scriptures we have just read. Because Revelation 21 will have to fit them. Otherwise, there's contradiction. Now, he gives a rundown in chapter 20 of the resurrections, the order of resurrections. Talks about the first one, the dead not living again until a thousand years is over, the rest of the dead. And then a great white throne judgment. So indeed, that is in the mix. But are all the things we thought surrounded that and the time element of it correct? And the answer is not entirely based on what we've already examined. 
So, picking it up in chapter 21, chapter 20 is kind of an inset. It's not necessarily chronological because he's, he's going through a rundown and a description of the various resurrections. And they are at different times. So what he's saying here is not necessarily chronological to everything else. In fact, we'll see uh, in this chapter 21 that the timing is also given. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We saw in Isaiah 65 that that is a millennial setting. Isaiah 66, still flesh around and still bodies laying around from the destruction at the end of the age. So this also then, since those are the only references to new heavens and the new earth in the past, this has to be referring to the same thing, and it has to be at the same time in order for it to fit together and not contradict. So, as we begin reading, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We're talking about the end of this age, at the end of the destruction, and at the beginning of the millennium, when all flesh will begin to serve God, and will be having children, and building houses, and inhabiting them, and the kingdom of God will be starting. And I think the indication there in Isaiah 65 is that people in the millennium will live a hundred years. Babies will be born and live a hundred years. People who were old men who survived the Holocaust will live a hundred years. They'll be renewed. If they were ninety and somehow made it through the tribulation and the seven last plagues, they're going to live another hundred years. That seems to be the indication. So it's not talking about the time element of the last great day because the context simply doesn't fit the last great day. New heavens and new earth, beginning of millennium. For the first heaven and the earth, first earth were passed away. Now we've already seen that passed away here doesn't mean croaking. We use the term in terms of human nature, I mean human beings, who we say pass away. It's not really a good term. They don't go away to heaven or hell. They die. We don't like to use the term somebody died. We like to say they passed away. Passed on. Passed up. Preach them all to heaven. Some of them went to hell. You'll never hear a preacher say it. Upsets the family, but everybody knows. <laughs> Family even knows. There's no one that's said. Well, they don't go to heaven or hell when they die. <laughs> they die. They don't pass on. And the earth doesn't pass on. It didn't get burned completely. Here again, John is quoting Isaiah 24, and he may be quoting Second Peter 3 both of which are centered in the day of the Lord and the first resurrection, when victory over death is achieved. So whatever is on the earth that passes is in context of the earth being pretty well messed up, but still here. And the law is still here. 
and there was no more sea. What does that mean? There was no more sea. Does it mean the water just disappeared? What does no more sea mean? Somebody's reading their Bible. Let's go to Ezekiel 47. Here it talks about the temple. Uh, verse 8. This is where he walked out in the water, remember, up to his ankles, up to his knees, up to his thighs, and then he had to swim for it. Um, verse 8, he said to me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. What does healing the waters mean? Go to verse 11. But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed, they shall be given to salt. Salt water needs healed. Did you ever get a big mouthful, nose full of seawater? Something needed healed. I've had it go right up my nose. Not a very comfortable feeling. Seawater is inhospitable. You can be floating out. 400 miles from shore, a lot of water, nothing to drink. So healing the waters means that the salt is removed. The waters coming out from under the temple and later in the, in the New Jerusalem coming out will heal the waters. It will remove the salt, and it says here, except for a few marshes, there will be places on the earth that people simply will rebel against God during the millennium and even before. It won't be totally healed. There'll be a rebellion. I think Ezekiel 47 is talking about the river coming from the physical temple probably just before Christ returns. As an example to the world, that's an entirely different subject. We won't go there. But I wanted to point out that there was no more sea because in the new heavens and the new earth, fresh water is, come, is going to come from the throne of God and heal the water so that they're fresh and usable, palatable. Okay, there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Here's new heavens and new earth, the holy city coming down at the beginning of the millennium, based on the timing we've been reading so far today. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Didn't we see yesterday, and back it up with Scripture, that he is coming from a long journey to his father's throne to pick his bride up, first resurrection, be changed into immortality and incorruptibility, go back with him to the sea of glass, stand there, be married, have a year honeymoon, and come back with him, because 1 Thessalonians 4:17 said, once we're resurrected, we will ever be with him, never to be away from his side ever again. So, when do we come out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? We read that in chapter 19 yesterday, right across the page. He comes back then with his vesture dipped in blood, verse 13, and his name is called the Word of God. That's Christ. 
And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And then is when he smites the earth and rules them with a rod of iron. When are we going to rule on the earth with a rod of iron? In the millennium. Starting at the beginning, not the end of it. We shall reign on the earth a thousand years, Revelation 5.10. So when we come down as a bride adorned with fine linen, white and clean, with our Lord and Master, Husband and King of kings and Lord of hosts, it's at the beginning of the millennium. So the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, come at the beginning of the millennium. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. He's going to live with us during the millennium. We will reign with him a thousand years. That's when he will dwell with us and be our God. And he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What are the former things? The stuff we're suffering right now, pain and agony and emotional upset, frustration, tears, sorrow. It won't be over for the world. It'll be over for the bride. She will have no reason ever to sorrow again. So he's talking about us, not someone else. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. When is he going to make all things new? Doesn't it say about the day of the Lord? I don't remember the exact context. This may be in Joel. I think it is where he says the heavens wax old like a garment. Is that in Hebrews? Maybe it's quoted in Hebrews. It's there. And it's ugly and worn out and polluted and wretched, and he's just sent all kinds of trouble and plagues upon it and killed most people and few men left. Then's when he's going to make all things new. He's going to restore and renew. The oceans aren't going to have plastic floating in them. The fish aren't going to be full of mercury and lead. The air is not going to be full of pollution. It's going to be a new heaven above us, a new earth beneath us. The ground will not be full of nitrates and chemical fertilizers and trash. It'll be restored and renewed not destroyed, not burned to a cinder, made new, made clean, made fresh. That's based on what we've already read. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I started this, and I'm going to finish it. Now, the finish line is when? First resurrection when death is overcome in victory. For us, and who's he talking about here? Us. He's not talking about the rest of the world here yet. 
I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He's going to be on the earth. The millennium will be, be, be beginning. And now he will give freely to anyone who wishes so that they might also enjoy the beauty of this new earth that we are here ruling for a thousand years. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. Well, if the new heavens and new earth were after the millennium and the great white throne judgment hundred years as we saw it, they would have already inherited, wouldn't they? But here he's talking about people overcoming and growing so that they might inherit. We will have already inherited when he returns. So this is talking about human beings overcoming so that they too might inherit. That's millennial. And that's the new heaven and new earth. They'll inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But now there's another category of people still around in when? The new heavens and new earth. What category of people is that? According to our former belief, all the evil ones would be burned up by now in the new heavens and new earth. Let's read on. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So there are still people around whose judgment is not yet complete. And when it is, if they have not accepted and grown and overcome, as he said in verse 7, then they will be burned up in the lake of fire. And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had, didn't still have, but had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. Now when were the seven last plagues poured out? while the bride was with the husband on the sea of glass with their year of honeymoon. So he had just poured this out over the earth. That ended, and the new heavens and new earth came down, and the same angel that had been holding that approached John in this vision and said what? He talked with me saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Okay, he had just poured out the seven last plagues, end of the age. Christ comes back then to finish conquering the earth, chapter 19, and the bride is with him. So this angel, and that's establishing context. Why did he say it was the angel that had the seven last plagues if it was 1,100 years later? That would have been, yeah, that's forgotten about. No, the guy had just had that, dropped it, whatever. But he's going to show the bride the lamb's wife. Now, what did the lamb's wife look like? He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like to stone most precious. And he goes on to describe the city that's laid out 
12 gates and 144,000 uh, people. It's patterned after the bride, the 144,000, 12,000 times 12,000. So he said, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is the bride. Okay, let's think back a minute. First Thessalonians 4, when we're resurrected in the first resurrection, we will ever be with him. Where is he going to be during the millennium? On the earth ruling. Where will we be? On the earth ruling with him. Quite simple. I'm being a bit dramatic today in doing this step by step and maybe being too simplistic, but I want us to really examine the scriptures for what they say so we're getting the message, not just glossing over some things. Did it ever occur to us, Christ is going to come back and reign on the earth and we'll reign with him? What are we going to do, get some of these discarded uh, shipping crates from China and uh, set them up and get a little government going? Did we ever address where that was going to be or how we were going to do it? Were we just going to go to Jerusalem where it had been defiled and set up shop, move into some Jew's jewelry store? We never addressed it. You think Christ is going to come and reign the earth or reign on the earth without a seat of government without a capital? No, here it is. He and his bride are coming back in glory. Let's go on. And I saw no temple there in verse 22, for the eternal God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon. Remember where it said the sun and the moon would be ashamed there in Isaiah 24 and 25? They won't be very bright by comparison. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. We always taught that after the earth all burned up, then the new heavens and new earth would come, and God the Father would come down at that time. No. He's coming when his Son and the Bride come. The new Jerusalem's coming down, new heavens and new earth, beginning of the millennium. God the Father's coming also. Now let's prove some context here again. Verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So this new heavens and new earth is going to include the heavenly Jerusalem, the Father, the Son, the Bride, and the kings of the what? Human beings, kings of the earth, are going to come to it and bring honor and glory. What does it say in Zechariah 14? If the Mitzriamites do not come, they will get no rain. That means they're human, right? Because rain still affects them. But it says it right here as we go on down. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. We always said it was after... All human beings were gone. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. 
and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, those of the first resurrection. That is an implication that there are still liars and the abominable and those who are defiled yet alive, but they will not be allowed within. God will not put up with that in the holy city. There will still be sinners on the earth. Doesn't it say in Isaiah 30, 21, you will see your teachers they will say, this is the way, walk in it. If they were holy spirit beings, they wouldn't need to be told that. And if they were evil, they would have already been burned up, according to Ellen G. White and Herbert W. Armstrong and me. But we have to change when we see what Scripture says. They'll not be allowed in there. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. And he goes on to describe that those will be there for the healing of the nations and the healing of the waters. So this is a time when healing is still going on. The heavens, new heavens and new earth, we believed, everything had been burned up and redone, and there wouldn't need to be any healing then, would there? But the new heavens and the new earth are here, and the waters are coming out to heal the nations. So the earth is still here, people are still here, and they have not yet been healed. It is a period of time that is required for the healing to occur. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their forge, and no light again needed, because God gives them light. And he said, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show to his servants the things which must be shortly done, or shortly be done. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel were sent to show us these things that would be done. And we went back there and read them, didn't we? And we saw that there were still people around. And we saw that all the destruction and the dis dissolving and all those things that Peter talked about were done, and yet there were still people left alive. And then the first resurrection occurred and there was victory over death. So these things that were written about by the prophets that would be done shortly included the new heavens and the new earth, which was just discussed here. Then he said to seal up the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And then he, he gives a final warning, that if you want to have the tree of life and are in, into the gates of the city, then you have to repent and change, grow and overcome. But there's coming a point when it is too late. If you're a sinner, stay a sinner. If you're not, don't become one. Remain just, because it's coming on us right away. Those who keep his commandments, that would be us and others like us, 
have a right to the tree of life. He says he'll give it to us at the first resurrection in Revelation 2 and 3 in speaking to the churches. And they may enter into the city. I'm going to prove what I read to you back up there in verse 27 about abomination and those who defile still being around. Those who have the tree of life, spirit beings, can enter the city, the obedient. For without, outside the new heavens and the new earth, the holy city, outside of the new Jerusalem, if you will, are what? Dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loves and makes a lie. They're still alive. They haven't repented yet. They are not allowed within the city on this earth. At the beginning of the millennium, they will be given opportunity to repent. But for us, time is short. We have to qualify and be counted worthy to be in that first resurrection so that we can have access to the city when all of those left who are still alive at the end of the tribulation cannot go there because they're still liars and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters. And that must change before they are ever allowed to enter. Now, it should be quite clear that the earth is not going to be burned completely up and the new heavens and the new earth come at the beginning of the millennium when the bride comes down with the bridegroom. And the new heavens and the new earth are on the earth, God the Father with Christ and with the bride ruling the earth a thousand years. Now this is the last great day and I just preached the millennium. But we had to straighten the stuff out about the last great day in order to understand the millennium. So now hopefully we understand the millennium and tomorrow... Maybe we can discuss the last great day.